0: Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day.
2: Our nation's capital it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to
3: Deadline Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist at a hill in Washington DC, and a commentator on politics for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my uh, political polling company, or you'd like to make some suggestions or have some ideas for Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, you can reach me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all of you who are watching me on Periscope and Twitter. If any of you who are listening to me on the radio now uh, want to see me, you can uh, access the show and watch it every Monday at three o'clock at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Our guest in the first half hour today is Dr. Jennifer Nuzzle, an Epiderminologist uh, at John Hopkins University who will discuss the president's push to reopen schools this fall in the midst of the pandemic crisis. Our guest in the second half hour on the provocative progressive political panel um, is uh, Democratic strategist Tim Zink of Molecule and joining Tim on the provocative progressive political panel will be progressive activist Mark uh, Our Now it's time to bring on Dr. Jennifer Nuzzle. Uh, Dr. Nuzzle is a senior scholar uh, at uh, the John Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at John Hopkins Bloomberg. School of Public Health. Her work focuses on, on global health security and outbreak detection and response. Welcome to Deadline DC uh, with Brad Bannon, Dr. Nuzzle. Thanks for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: Okay, well, let's start with the general picture. Uh, over the weekend, I think on Friday and Saturday, Uh, We had more than 60,000 new cases, confirmed cases of the COVID uh, virus uh, uh, on each day. Uh, It seems to me, and if I'm wrong, please uh, feel free to correct me, the COVID crisis is getting worse instead of better after all these months.
4: You're right. I mean, I'm deeply worried about the trajectory that we're on Um, across the nation. We have more than half of states reporting increases in cases, and that's very much out of sync with what other countries have been able to do by now. Um, So while there are some states that have um, been quite good at bringing down their case numbers, New York is a great example um, they really had a very uh, troubling spring, but through you know lots of effort, um, brought their case numbers way down. Unfortunately, in many other states, uh, the trends are headed in the wrong direction, and so case um, numbers are growing. And in fact, many of these states are now reporting more cases than the U.S. has ever seen in a single day before our shutdowns, before all of the efforts that we had to put into place in the spring to try to slow the spreading uh, of this virus.
3: Okay. uh Doctor, why is the pandemic getting worse and still instead of better? uh we've been you know dealing with this now since January or February, and you would hope after all these months that we'd have the situation better than hand um and not letting it get it worse let let it get worse as it appears to be uh what went wrong?
4: Right. So we don't yet have a cure for this virus. Uh, We don't have a vaccine. We don't have a medicine that can prevent people who get infected from becoming severely ill. All we've really used so far are very blunt tools like shutdowns. So when you shut down um, a state or a city um, and you tell people that they have to stay home, it stands to reason that they're um, not going to get sick as frequently because they're coming in contact with fewer people. But um, shutdowns are not cures. They're basically a pause button. And if you're going to press play, then you have to have something else in place to prevent the cases from once again accelerating once people are allowed to leave their homes and go back to mixing with each other. And so what we think has happened is that a number of states, they shut down in the spring. Um, and then after um, seeing what you would expect to see are declines in the number of new cases, they reopened and they reopened in sort of rapid um, fire where they, um, instead of Reopening in a phased approach where you wait in between phases and and see the data, how they come in. They reopen in rapid fire. And crucially, they lacked the targeted public health measures that we think are so important for keeping cases from growing. And so those are things like being able to test as much as you need to to find all the infections that are out there. Being able to do contact tracing to find people who may have been exposed to someone who's infected and make sure they stay home until we know that they're not contagious. Um, that testing, tracing, isolating, um, those are very precision public health tools that um, are quite effective, but unfortunately quite resource intensive. And so if a state never had the capacity to do that, or if they had very limited capacity, and then they chose to, to reopen quickly, then they're going to have a situation where the cases are going to grow faster than they can handle them. And unfortunately, I think that's what we're seeing in a number of US states. Okay. What what's specifically, what was the difference?
3: Now, I, I just read that there were new, no uh, reported, uh, no new uh, coronavirus reported deaths in New York uh, a couple of, uh, in a couple of recent days. What did New York do that Florida didn't exactly?
4: Well, it's hard to say for sure, um, but what we think has happened is that um, places like Florida decided to reopen quickly Um, without, again, those um, targeted public health interventions in place. And so insufficient ability to test and insufficient ability to do contact tracing. And then crucially, when they opened, I, I don't believe that there was enough risk communication around the continued need for people to protect themselves. So just because you opened didn't mean you had to go to a crowded indoor establishment. But if you had political leaders in those states basically suggesting that everything was safe now, that, you know, the state was back to business, that we were, you know, soldiering on with our lives, coronavirus be damned, then that didn't exactly encourage people to take uh, protective measures that could keep themselves or their family members uh, safe. Conversely, in places like New York, where you had, you know, um, very committed uh, communication from leadership about how dangerous the virus is, and that despite um, a gradual, slow reopening. There was still a continued need um, to protect oneself. You had mandatory mask laws. You had lots of things that continued to encourage people to maintain distance from each other and to try to slow the spread, even um, when they began to leave their houses and the uh, economies began reopening.
3: Okay. Uh, uh, Governor Cuomo said last week uh, that he expects uh, more cases Uh, to pop up in the Northeast uh, because of the uh, severe outbreaks in uh, places like Florida and Arizona and Texas. Uh, Do you think he's right about that?
4: Unfortunately, I do. I mean, this is why it's so difficult to have a 50-state solution to a global pandemic. Um, Even if one state is doing well, it remains at risk as long as there are other states that are struggling. And so, this is why we really need national leadership and a national, you know, concerted effort to try to um, slow and reduce the spread of this virus, because, um, you know, any state that may be doing well and wants to get its economy back remains um, at risk um, from not just its neighbors, but other states in the country where me- people may come from.
3: Okay. Okay. Um, what? You, let's go back to Florida, because that seems to be where the outbreak uh, is worse now. Uh, what advice would you give to the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, right now?
4: So, um, first thing that a governor can do—that's they can—he could can do now—is to um, you know speak with your health and science experts to craft your messages to the people of Florida and to talk about risk protective behavior. That is absolutely essential. That is free, (laughs) and that can be done today. Um, The next thing is that one of my deep concerns about Florida is um, the percentage of tests that are coming back positive, that's something that we call positivity, is very high. And when it's high, it means that they're not testing enough people in order to find the infections that may be out there. That means that infections are not getting counted as cases, and that means that they're likely not staying at home, isolating themselves, um, and that could lead to uh, future cases.
3: Okay. So would be Dr. Nussle, uh, we're going to go to break now for our radio listeners uh, we're going to stay on for our listeners on uh, Twitter and Periscope and we'll be back uh, in a moment uh, with more of Dr. Jennifer
1: Nussel, uh from the John Hopkins University If you miss Leslie on TV this week catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com Okay. okay. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com/lesliemarshall, Leslie Marshall and we'll be sure to share your tweets.
3: Okay. Welcome back to Deadline Each with Brad Bannon. Uh, we have some audio to play uh, of Secretary of Education uh, DeVos uh, from an interview yesterday in one of the Sunday morning TV shows. I think it was State of the Nation on CNN.
0: You're the Secretary of, of Education. You're asking students to go back. So why do you not have guidance on what a school should do just weeks before you want those schools to reopen? And what happens if it faces an outbreak? You know, there's really good examples that have uh, been utilized in the private sector and in, and elsewhere, also with frontline workers and hospitals, and all of that data and all of that information and all of those examples can be referenced I, not, by school okay, leaders. But I'm not hearing who have, a plan who have from the, the Department of Education. Do you have a plan but for, the, for the, what you, students the plan, and what schools should do? So, Okay. Schools that should do what's right on the ground at that time for their students and for their situation. There is no one uniform approach that we can take na- or should take nationwide but can because I just the ask needs you, I, I of wonder- a school in the city of Detroit, are very. Right. in my home state, in the city of Detroit, would be very different than that of a school in the that's upper peninsula exactly. of Michigan. Exactly. And that's the point. That's completely understandable. Mm-hmm. But you are arguing over and over that they should handle this on a local level. But at the same time, as the secretary of education, you are trying to, to push them to do a one size fits all approach, which is go back and reopen schools. You can't have it both ways.
3: Okay, that was the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, uh, who wants who the Trump administration and the secretary have been pushing uh, local sleuth districts to open up uh, again next month, uh, but apparently don't have a plan to help them do that. Uh, Double talk from the Trump administration. Our guest in this half hour is, is Dr. Jennifer Nuzzle. Uh, Dr. Nuzzle is a senior associate at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology uh, at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, her Twitter handle is Jennifer Nuzzle. That's uh, Jennifer, uh, N-U-Z-Z-O, all one word. Dr. Nuzzle, uh, do you have any comment on what uh, Secretary DeVos just said?
4: Well, I think the decision to go back to school um, should be a locally made one. Um, I think every community is different in terms of um, what will work for the families that are sending their kids to the school and the staff there. That said, um, that doesn't mean that schools don't need help and they very much need um, guidance. And um, we would like to see guidance come from uh, you know, our national scientific leaders like the CDC. So I think it's appropriate for there to be national resources to enable schools um, to go back if um, that is something that the community um, can handle. But I do think that the decision, uh, you know, that although there may be a push to reopen across the nation, I do think that um, the reality is, is some schools are and communities are, are better equipped for it than others.
3: OK, uh, let me try this out on you, doctor. Uh, my daughter is um, a high, public high school uh, teacher uh, in a urban school district uh, in Massachusetts. Now, the governor uh, has issued guidelines uh, for the reopening of schools uh, just right after Labor Day. And uh, the uh, guidelines uh, say that school, uh, that uh, classrooms should not have any more than 10 children in that. Now, I talked to my daughter about this yesterday, and she said there are pro- obvious problems with that, which the state hasn't clarified yet. Uh, the school district doesn't have enough buildings or classrooms to fit all the students uh, if they keep them uh, to a, a limit of 10. And as my board daughter pointed out, uh, that doesn't deal with a host of other problems. Like uh, her, most of her students uh, ride to uh, school on uh, you know the subway or buses, and so they're going to be crowded in buses and subway cars with other people, which I seems to me is a uh, venue for extending the virus. Uh, what what do you consider? conditions that are safe for reopening schools?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this speaks to the challenge and also the need for these guidelines to be ground truth by the the schools themselves. Um, But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility um, to think about an approach where we could reopen if we are able to say we need more space, it is certainly within the power of governments to figure out and you know where we can get that space. Perhaps it is leasing additional space. Perhaps it's identifying alternatives. Perhaps it's it's uh, flexible schedules. You know, the point is that this um, these approaches should be pursued, but of course in collaboration um, with uh, you know school leadership, so that the the plans that are offered are are workable ones. But I think it highlights the bigger challenge here, which is that bringing kids back in a manner that works and that is safe and makes people feel safe is also something that will require additional resources. And I don't think that um, individual school districts have enough resources to be able to do this. And this is really why in, in writing about this, um, colleagues and I have called for um, you know, national funding for this. This is something that um, if they need to do, then we need to be able to invest in it. And and doing so, The prioritization of schools and reopening schools safely should take precedent over, say, opening other aspects of our economy that potentially could lead to increased transmission in the community versus schools, which, um, if we are able to put these safety measures in place and if we aren't worried about um, surging disease rates in the surrounding community, uh, we know from other countries that it can be done. The question is, are we... Uh, willing to uh, invest and and do the hard work to make it happen, and unfortunately, the worry that I have is that this has now become a political fight where it's like you're either in camp open or camp closed, and I don't think that that's what we should be talking about here. I should think I think we should be talking about where is it possible and what do we need to do it in order to make it possible. That's a much more productive conversation than just reopen or lose your funding.
3: Okay, our last question, Doctor Nuzzle, is uh, what advice. There are some states, again, like Florida, Texas, Arizona that are suffering right now from a pandemic and they're dealing record numbers of cases. What advice would you give to the parent of a school child in those states where there are very high instances of
4: COVID-19? Yeah, so it's really hard to give advice on, you know, at a state level. I really think that parents and individual communities have to be comfortable with what is happening in their community in terms of um, disease spread, but also what the plans are. Um, to protect their kids and to protect the staff in their, their schools. And that's really why I think having an engaged conversation with your school district and, and elected officials is really important to make them understand what your priorities are and um, what's going to work for you. I know I've got young kids and our school district sent out a, a, um, a poll of parents' needs and wishes, and it's just the start of a conversation. And so I think that's the, the kind of most practical advice I can offer to parents um, because, you know, uh, Again, I think some local flexibility is going to be key. In my view, the the situation that's happening in states like Florida and Texas are really challenging, and it's hard for me to imagine that they'll be able to open. But again, um, local context really matters.
3: Thank you, Dr. Nuzzle, for joining us today. I'm sure you must be very busy given the current crisis, but thanks for taking the time to uh, join us today. Uh, We're going to break now. When we come back, we'll have our usual provocative, progressive political panel
1: If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com.
3: Welcome back to Deadline DC, the Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Joe Biden's campaign thus far has been low key, but it'll need to build up to a crescendo as the gap between him and Trump tightens as it inevitably will. The challenger has two high profile events that will provide momentum for the dog days of summer leading up to Labor Day and the presidential debates. The first will be his choice of a running mate. Uh, The second will be the virtual Democratic convention that will compete with the GOP COVID convention in Florida where the pandemic rages unabated. The Democratic nominee began to set the stage for a more intense campaign and for an aggressive, progressive presidency last week. His supporters and followers of his primary foe, Senator Bernie Sanders, agreed on a bold party platform recommendations. And the vice president produced uh, proposed seven hundred billion dollars in new spending over four years for the Biden Build Back Better plan. Tough times bring out the best and worst in political leaders. Donald Trump joins the ranks of presidents like James Buchanan and Herbert Hoover, who froze in the face of crisis, while Joe Biden hopes to join the elite group of chief executives like Lincoln and FDR, who faced chaos head head on and won. If Biden wins, the country loses if he snoozes. You can read this column and my take on the presidential race every Monday uh, in The Hill. You can find it by Googling muckrack.com front slash Brad-Bannon. Now it's time for our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Tim Zink. Tim is a principal at molecule of public affairs and business company. Tim has spent his distinguished career shaping public policy and politics. His Twitter handle is green crude, all one word. Joining Tim on the panel is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked on get out the vote operations for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Mark is also involved in campaign finance reform and philanthropic efforts for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Welcome panel, thanks for joining us today. Uh, back in the first half hour, we discussed the, uh, the Trump push uh, to reopen schools in August. Uh, it seems to me that in this case you have, uh, Trump figuratively playing the schoolyard bully and he's telling school districts, uh, open up or we'll punish you and beat you up. Uh, however, um, we played a clip in the last half hour, of the secretary of education, uh, insisting the schools, uh, open up, but also, uh, you know, failing to come up with any plan that the federal government has uh, to help school districts do that. Uh, so, Tim, what does this education thing say about the, the Trump administration?
5: Well, uh, they don't know the first thing there is to know about how education's funded. And if you just basic know the basics of how we fund education in the United States, you know that the funding is really focused at the fed, at the uh, at the state level state legislators and and cities fund their school systems not the federal government very very small minority of money comes from the federal department of education and I, so it just goes to show you that how disconnected these guys are with even the ability to govern uh, and you would think the president of the united states would know that federal agencies don't fund our state school systems
3: Well, you know, I mean, it's true. Uh, I think basically uh, to uh, punctuate what you said, uh, roughly about 10 percent of funding for public uh, elementary and high schools comes from the federal government, which means 90 percent comes from the state and local level. Uh, Not a
5: lot of leverage, Brad.
3: No, not a lot of leverage and also a little leverage and a lot of
2: stupidity, in my opinion. Uh, Mark,
3: do you want to weigh in on this?
2: You know, I was happy to see the guidelines that were leaked from the CDC, and so were many teachers and school districts. Uh, for those who missed over the weekend, the New York Times broke a story um, that they obtained a 69-page document marked for internal use only from the CDC uh, with guidelines on and recommend, recommendations on how schools can safely reopen and what type of things they should do to evaluate risk and determining whether or not they should reopen, whether or not they should have in-person or virtual classes, how many students should be there. Again, this was suppressed by the Trump administration like previous guidelines from the CDC have been. And there are administrators who are saying that the bad news is that this was needed six weeks ago and also that the Trump administration is coming out against their own guidelines. Um, the other thing that we see is uh, the CDC website and this report are cautioning that full reopening would be, quote unquote, the highest risk. And that in both K-12 and higher education settings, the more people interact, quote, and the longer that interaction the higher the risk of COVID-19 spread and the lowest risk the guidelines say would be for students and teachers to attend virtual only classes and um, the other thing that you have when you look at this document is guidelines that should not be suppressed but should be put out there for other states to use and municipalities to use and then additional funding to help them safely reopen. whereas the trump administration has not been pushing for any of that so they're not serious about reopening safely in my opinion and you're going to put a lot of lives at danger this document also says that there is in the talking point section there's quote unquote noticeable gaps in reopening plans reviewed from florida oregon Oklahoma and Minnesota the final part I'll read Brad is it says while many jurisdictions and districts mention symptom screening very few include information as to the response of course of action they would take if a student faculty or staff are found to have symptoms nor have they clearly identified which symptoms they will include in their screening and few plans include information regarding school closure in the event of positive tests which are going to happen so not only do they not have these, but this document evaluating that they don't have these is being suppressed. So it's a giant mess. And I'm, I'm, as Nancy Pelosi said yesterday, Betsy DeVos and the Trump administration are messing with our kids' health. And I, for one, as I know you gentlemen, are, I'm pissed off about it. And we need to stop it from turning into a political football and worry about the, the health of our children first and foremost.
3: Yeah, I mentioned in the first half hour that my daughter is a public uh, high school teacher, and she thinks the Trump administration's policy on schools, which is to beat them into submission and force them to open, uh, is just plain crazy. Um well, it's sex- also
5: really bad politics. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really I mean, is. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I, mean, I just don't get it.
3: Yeah, I don't either because uh, one thing that's pretty clear about the national polls is Americans want to be very cautious um, about, uh, you know, everything has to do with this pandemic, uh, right. the opening up the economy, uh, opening up schools, and despite the fact that Amer- the American public is smart enough to realize we have to be very cautious dealing with this crisis the Trump administration wants to go ahead, uh, hell or high water. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why I think the president's job rating is in the toilet right now. He's completely out of sync with public opinion. And honestly, I don't know how he thinks he's going to get reelected when he ignores the caution that Americans have about the pandemic and also refuses to accept uh, the cultural changes that are happening in this country, and again, the public accepts the caution, they also widely accept the uh, uh, the change social changes that are going uh, on in this country, like Black Lives Matter. Um, how do you think the president's going to get reelected if he ignores these public opinion trends? I just don't see it. Uh, Tim,
5: well, well for somebody who spends most of his day watching. Various news programs and reading uh, copious polls, and I understand that the Trump Trump campaign spent uh, four hundred eighty thousand dollars this last quarter on polling. I would I would assume that he's seeing the same numbers you and I uh, and and Mark are seeing, Brad. But, so what's um, going on here then? Well, I just I feel like he's uh, you know a stubborn old coot who simply doesn't uh, feel that he can be be that that anything other than the direction he wants to head, he's used to running his own company, is the direction he should go. And I just would I just would assume that it's just uh, just uh, a factor that he clearly doesn't want to hear the truth. Um, and I think that's really what it stems from.
3: Yep. Uh, okay, we're gonna go to break now for our radio audience. Uh, we're gonna continue for our audience on Periscope TV. Uh, Order, radio audience will be back in a few minutes. Uh, TV audience will keep on plowing ahead with the provocative, progressive political panel.
1: Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. Welcome back to
3: Headline with Brad Bannon for our radio audience. And by the way, uh, our to our radio audience, if you'd like to view the proceedings as opposed to listen to them, um, if you want to watch them and listen to them at the same time, uh, you can join us on periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Believe it or not, I have my own TV channel on the internet. God, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, uh, we're in the middle of our provocative progressive political panel. Uh, Today joining us are Tim Zink, a Democratic strategist from Molecule and aggressive political activist Mark Grimaldi.
2: Uh,
3: Let's uh, try, uh, since we have a prominent Democratic strategist on the panel, let's talk campaign strategy. CBS released a new uh, poll today of the presidential race in three battleground states, uh, Texas, Arizona and Florida. Uh, Biden was leading Trump by six points in Florida and basically in a dead heat uh, with uh, the president in uh, Arizona and Texas, which I don't think was supposed to be a battleground state, um, but it is now this raises a question which I've seen a fair amount of in the internet in the last few days uh, since uh, Joe Biden seems to be leading um, by a decent margin uh, should he go big and try to expand the battleground map to states like Texas now in uh, if, if you look at the electoral college map you uh, the three states that turned the tide against Hillary Clinton in 2016 were Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Now, if Joe Biden wins all three of those states, which Clinton barely lost, he would have enough electoral votes to become president. So the question is in that context that he tried to go for a bigger, uh, bigger hit by expanding into states like Georgia and Texas, which would be tough nuts to crack, um, but might be doable. Um, Now, what concerns me about this, and I'm interested to hear what the panel has to say, is that Hillary Clinton late in the 2016 campaign decided to let up on Wisconsin and Michigan. She pretty much ignored those campaigns Uh, states at the end of the campaign, and started running TV advertising uh, in Georgia and Arizona. Now, she didn't didn't end up winning either Arizona or Georgia, she ended up losing uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, which turned out to be fatal to her campaign. So, Tim, uh, can you speak on this? Yeah,
5: I mean, well, first of all, it's always risky to open up the campaign exposure to uh, you know going beyond the sort of standard formula into those states that are traditionally not battleground states like Texas, even Ohio, Arizona you know those those can that can be tough uh, territory and particularly because of the resources required to really play uh, in those areas And you know the, the old rule of scum uh, the snut scum the old rule of thumb is you got to dominate the media in those areas and so in order to do that you've got to you've got to really spend significant campaign resources there not just field but advertising and everything else that goes with a modern day campaign social media etc so the risk is that you you get uh further extended that you can't really put the resources into the state you gotta win i think it's a i think it's going to be a close call but i think if we have the ability to run up the numbers and uh help uh, Senate uh, increase this opportunity for to take back the U.S. Senate and increase our our depth in the in the House. Then we should really strongly consider uh, taking that taking that road. However, the numbers have got we've got to follow the numbers here. Whether or not we actually have a shot, and so I would I will leave it to the experts. But I think stay tuned to this issue because it's going to be something that we uh, will we, uh, we'll know where they're going to be in the next three or four weeks. OK, this country
3: is facing major problems, even if the pandemic ebbs and there's actually no sign of that happening. If you especially if you look at states like Florida and Texas, that's uh, pretty discouraging. But even let's say things go as well as they possibly can. Uh, and the pandemic uh, ebbs, at least, or slows down instead of racing forward like it is now in the south uh Joe Biden is going to need a friendly Senate if he is going to do anything significant to help build this country back. Um, now, my concern is that if Biden wins, and by the way, I, I don't think, you know, I'm certainly encouraged by the numbers, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I expect this race will tighten up uh, mm-hmm. or it's all over. Uh, But even if he wins and he has a friendly Democratic majority in the House, which he probably will have, um, and let's say things go well and the Democrats end up, you know, with 50 majority in the Senate, you know, 52 or 53 uh, senators. Um, last week, by the way, uh, Charlie Cook, a uh, prominent political analyst was on the show and he said there's at least a 50, 50 chance, at least a 50, 50 chance of the Democrats taking back the Senate, but wow. Biden's going to have a tremendous challenge ahead of him. And if he needs, and if he's going to get anything done, he is going to need a friendly, uh, Senate. So that suggests that he will need to expand the field places like Arizona, with, there's a very good chance that Mark Kelly, the Democratic candidate, will beat the Republican incumbent. Uh, North Carolina, uh, where the uh, Democratic challenger uh, Cunningham is uh, beating the incumbent Senator uh, Tom Tillis, uh, that Biden will have to take a flyer and do everything you can to help some uh, Democrats uh, in competitive Senate races. Uh, uh, Mark, what do you think about this?
2: I think that you have to have your numbers people look at the viability of what Tim talked about, which is that you're not going to overextend yourself. Also, you have the additional challenges of trying... To do this in a pandemic, um, and you're going to have to have a lot of virtual events. in In that case, it may be an advantage. You you may be able to connect with media in a way that they find acceptable because it's not in person, and you can put out you know with with digital media and and social media these days. You you can use your funds to uh, flood the airwaves there. Um, But I agree, he he needs the Senate because we are going to have so much, I say we as the American people who want to move on from this current nightmare, not just Democrats, Republicans, Independents. um, It's going to take a lot of work and legislation to undo the damage that has been done by this administration. And unless uh, a a President Biden would have uh, the majority in the Senate, you're going to see... A very similar uh, thing that happened to President Obama in 2013, 2014, 2015, which was anything he wanted to do was, was blocked by Congress. Um, so I think it's going to be extremely important, and if you have a chance to go after the map in a big way, then do it. This could also help down ballot races they're talking about even below Senate. Um, it was something President Obama had talked about during his time, the weakness of Republicans being able to run state houses you know, around the country. You're gonna have a lot of opportunity to, to build your bench here and to grow. Um, so I would be aggressive, while still just remembering to basically uh, watch your backside and remember the lessons of 2016. But I do think with the numbers the way they are, there's definitely a possibility to go for it here. You just have to do it in a precise way.
3: Well, that raises another issue, Mark, the state legislatures. Mm -hmm. Um, The state legislators who were elected this year are going to get to redraw uh, the state legislative and congressional districts that will be stuck with uh, until uh, 2032. Uh, so another argument for Biden pushing the envelope uh-huh. is to provide as much air cover as he can for Democratic state legislative candidates uh, so that we have a dominant seat at the table when they draw congr- uh, redraw congressional and uh, state legislative districts uh, next year. So uh, that's another issue to consider. Uh, We discussed this last week, but I'd like to get Tim's opinion on this. Uh, Tim, there's been some conversation in uh, Washington, D.C. that if Democrats do take control of the Senate, uh, whether it would be a good idea to abolish the filibuster rule or not. Now, the arcane rules of the Senate uh, mean that to get almost anything passed in the Senate, you need 60 votes not a bare majority of 51. So the question is, if Democrats win, let's say we have a 51 to 52 vote majority uh, in the uh, Senate.
5: So the answer is, I think we should abandon the cloture requirement in the Senate rules because we need to get some things done. American people are hurting. We need to aggressively pursue uh, assistance for people. And we need to turn this country around once and for all. Okay, thank you, Tim. That's it for our
3: Provocative Progressives political panel today. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo of John Hopkins Medical School, Democratic strategist, Tim Zink, and progressive activist, Mark Grimaldi.
0: Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. Come into CVS today and get free flu shots for the whole family. Plus, get a $5 off $20 shopping pass with each one. Visit CVS today. No-cost flu shots with most insurance. Restrictions apply. Visit cvs.com for details.